the most important thing that can happen to any of us is that after we die, we come to heaven. Nature never ceases to speak to us about this potential. Every day the sun sets, but then it rises. Darkness is conquered by light. Every month the moon wanes, and then it waxes. Vanishing into non-existence is succeeded by the fullness. Every year winter sets in, but gives way to spring and summer. Coldness to warmth, death to new life. All this speaks of the resurrection, first of Jesus Christ, and then to all who will rise with him. And just as nature tells this truth through various cycles of time, so also the Church's liturgy presents the same truth to us in a much more detailed and concentrated form. Holy Mass, which is the living memorial of the Paschal Mystery, is the high point of any given day. And each daily Mass is a preparation for Sunday, for Mass on the Lord's Day. And each Sunday, a preparation for Easter, our highest celebration of the Resurrection. And each Easter Triduum, a preparation for our own death, when we hope to rise with Christ, if we have used those opportunities of preparation well, spoken to us by nature and the liturgy. This video introduces a course in seven parts to prepare us for the rites of Easter, to understand as best we can their meaning, and to live accordingly. The rites of Holy Week were the most ancient and stable in the church year, until the 1950s. In March 1951, the Vatican released an instruction on the restored rite of Holy Saturday, and in November 1955, on the great mysteries of our redemption. Those who initiated these changes knew full well why they picked on Holy Week. Father Carlo Braga proudly described the reformed Holy Saturday as the head of the battering ram which pierced the fortress of our hitherto static liturgy. They were quite right that by breaching Holy Week, they were able to assault the whole church year, and 15 years later saw the introduction of Pope Paul VI's new Mass. It is as if an enemy of the church planned this. For the last 70 years, hell has battered the church so that she is now so bruised, so bloody, so ugly and exhausted that she scarcely has the aspect of a bride. She is unrecognizable. She has no form, as if a worm and no woman. But thereby she shares in the passion of our Lord who prayed, But I am a worm and no man, the reproach of men and the outcast of the people. The changes to the liturgy go deeper than just a worldly attempt to please people outside the church. Rather, it's been a devastating attack on God's honor, on Christ's glory, on the Holy Spirit's wisdom, and on our redemption. Behind all this must be the devil. But his evil work will come back and fall on his own head. The target was the Easter Vigil, but this is the night when the gates of hell are destroyed. The cross, which Satan has so exultingly prepared for the just one, has been his overthrow. Or as St. Anthony so forcibly expresses it, the cross is the bait thrown out to the Leviathan, which he took, and taking it, was conquered. The changes to the liturgy went straight for the heart. They draw all of our attention to what matters most in the church's year. This is not to say that if we can restore the liturgy, all the problems will be solved, but it is an absolutely essential part of the church's life, and she will not be herself again until the ancient Holy Week is available to everybody. As the Easter mysteries are the head and high point 
of the church's whole year, there is a long preparation of Lent, and before that, the three-week preparation of Septuagesima. Here, the green vestments of the Sunday Masses after the Epiphany give way to violet vestments as a signal to people of the coming changes in Lent. In previous centuries, not everybody had a calendar or knew what day Ash Wednesday would fall, so the change in the colour to the vestments was a signal so that they could begin preparing their kitchens for Lent, for example, to eat up any meat or dairy that was stored. And as Septuagesima prepares the church for this sombre season, so also the Gloria and the Alleluia are no longer prayed in the Mass. It is not only a notice to prepare our food stores, but also to formulate our Lenten resolutions. Ideally, these will cover three areas, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Fasting serves the spiritual life, that our soul can divert its powers from bodily or natural concerns to the supernatural. Few people can contemplate when they're stuffed full of food. If our body can be undistracted, then it remains, as it were, light, so the soul can climb. It is not only food and drink that we fast from, but also comforts. One might resolve, for example, to get up at an early hour every day, or to take cold showers. We can also impose a fast on the mind from curiosity, resolving not to use the internet before 10 a.m. or 12 noon, or not to use the internet after 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. The mind and body withdrawing somewhat from the things of this world means that the greater part of the powers of the soul can be concentrated on those things of eternity. In calibrating our resolutions, it's important to set something challenging but by no means impossible. Just as with weight training, it's useless to pick a weight so light that we could do 50 repetitions without feeling any pain. It's also no good to choose something so heavy we can hardly get it off the ground without doing an injury to ourselves. So resolutions that are too easy will not afford growth to the spiritual life. And resolutions which are too hard might see us give up after two or three days, causing discouragement. And also there are many who think it's rude to fast on a major feast day, like St. Joseph's Feast or the Annunciation. Heaven is pleased by our celebration as well as by our mortification, but each in their proper time. The Greek church sings, The light of fasting has purified our senses. May we be most brightly enlightened by the spiritual rays of thy cross. This is a fact that the cross illuminates our intellects. It gives us understanding how life can follow death. By contemplating the cross and by experiencing it in our body and mind through our mortifications and sacrifices and fasting, the mind is illuminated. It is allowed to share in God's understanding rather than the messages of this world. Besides fasting, we can also intensify our prayer life. There are many ways to do this. We could read the Bible every day or pray part of the divine office, for example, compline in the evening. Like fasting, it's a question of doing something which is neither easy nor too difficult, but a challenge. Almsgiving is also important. So St. Augustine said, if you would give two wings to your prayer, then fast and give alms. Spiritually, it's even more necessary to offload some ballast by almsgiving than by fasting. For the soul is more bogged down by the cares of material goods than the body by too much food. Possessions weigh us down. We can lighten our loads. If someone is open-handed, then it is easier not to be ruled by objects. The book of Tobit tells us that by giving alms, you will be laying up a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity, for charity delivers from death. 
and Sirach says, Water extinguishes a blazing fire, so almsgiving atones for sin. And as Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar, Redeem thou thy sins with alms, and thy iniquities with works of mercy to the poor. Perhaps God will forgive thy offences. We cannot buy our way into heaven, but by giving money away, we can help ourselves avoid hell. So we intensify our fasting, praying and almsgiving through Lent as preparation for Easter. And Lent is also a time to deepen other spiritual practices, such as repenting, forgiving and making a new start. These we will consider in the next video as we turn our attention to Passiontide.